The Gospels are filled with the accounts of demons. But are there really such things? Are there malevolent spirits, or are these just ancient people who, not understanding human psychiatry, not understanding things like epilepsy, are seeing completely normal, sad, tragic, difficult, but normal manifestations in human bodies, and not knowing what to do with them, they simply push them off into a made-up spiritual category of demonic activity. That's one of the accusations that people of faith, Christians in particular, have to deal with in the 21st century, that anything we can't explain, we just push off into the God category. Now remember, Luke himself is a physician. He lived a long time ago, but he is a medical doctor now acting as investigator. As we're going to find out later by reading the book of Acts, he's Paul, the Apostle Paul's biographer. He is a man who has taken pains to accurately tell you what is happening in the life of Jesus. And Luke says, beyond question, the first thing that Jesus encounters when he steps out onto that shore, what the disciples thought was a safe haven, he finds a man. Another gospel says two men, but Luke is focusing on one, on the protagonist, a man filled with demons. What are demons exactly? What does Scripture tell us about them? Well, Scripture unapologetically, actually from the very third chapter of Scripture, begins to tell us what demons are. Demons are created as holy angels, and their purpose was to serve God and His people. In the beginning, God made everything. The one eternal God, the God who is there, made everything else under creation. And you and I are the crown of His creation. We're the object of His redeeming love. We're the object of His salvation. But there's another order of creation slightly higher than ours, the Bible says. And these are angels, which the book of Hebrews later calls ministering spirits who God created to serve those who would inherit salvation. So it's not a New Testament thing at all. It actually... Uh, these stories and descriptions and understanding about the spiritual world that we cannot see that is populated not only by God, but by other created beings that He made called angels is all through Scripture. And they were created as holy angels, set apart for God to serve God and His people. But, very importantly, Demons are those holy angels who became sinful and fallen. Angels do not have the same kind of relationship that human beings can have with God, but they very clearly have a relationship and an obedience and a worship and an awe and a love for Him. Because there is no love, there is no trust if the other party has no choice and no will. And as Jesus Himself begins to talk about what He knows about the spiritual world, you'll see mind, will, emotions, plans that are contrary to God and contrary to Jesus. These demons then are those who are sinful and fallen, and because they are, they're opposed to God. They're opposed to His people, and they are opposed to His purpose. These are demons. People often think of Satan in particular as God's equal and opposite counterpart. That's a, not a biblical idea at all. That's not a scriptural idea. 
There is one eternal God who makes everything, and everything is under His control. Yes, He has some who love Him and some who oppose Him, but He has no equal in the universe He made. The idea of equal and opposing forces is an Eastern spiritual idea. You've heard of yin and yang? You've heard of things like karma? These are not biblical ideas. These are ideas drawn from Eastern mysticism that the universe is in balance between two opposing forces. The Bible says from the very beginning, God alone is uncreated and eternal. And He made everything, including holy angels, to serve Him and to serve His people, but having given them apparently faculties and intelligence and will and emotions of His own, there was a, re a rebellion in heaven, and then a battle was joined. And ever since the fall of Satan, the chief demon, if you will, the strongest of the holy angels who fell and drew many with him, ever since there has been a battle in the unseen spiritual world where God's people, His purpose, and God Himself are opposed by what Scripture calls to identify these, these fallen angels, demons. And here's what you need to know about them. Their power is limited and their judgment is certain. Listen to Peter, one of Jesus' first disciples, talk about the certainty of that judgment. Peter explains, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. In other words, when there was this heavenly rebellion, some were immediately and permanently judged. Many others obviously still roam the earth. And that's what Jesus is going to encounter on this shore. I want you to hear Jesus speak to it about this himself now. A little further in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has sent out the 72. Because there were not only the 12, Luke says there was a larger group of disciples who were going to go out and represent Jesus, known as the 72, and they come back, and they have what in some organizations today we would call an after-action report. Anybody ever have to do one of those? They have a little staff meeting to discuss how it went, and these 72 ordinary men are quite excited. It says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Well, that's pretty heady stuff if you're just an ordinary guy who started following Jesus. If you're just a carpenter, you're just a shopkeeper, you're just a fisherman, you're just a farmer, and suddenly you find yourself in a personal close relationship, a relationship of discipleship where he's the teacher and you're the apprentice, and you're seeing him do things that only God can do, and he's opening up these scriptures, the very ones you hold in your hand, and he's pointing to things written 700 and 1,000 years earlier, and he's showing you by word and deed that he is the fulfillment of all of those promises. And then from the many thousands of people following you, him, he puts you in a special group and you go out to represent him and he gives you authority over demons and disease. And make no mistake, if you follow the miraculous ministry of Jesus, we're often told he healed diseases and he cast out demons. Luke knows the difference. These are not the same thing. Paul himself will give Timothy a little medical advice once to stop drinking water and have a little wine on account of your stomach, he says. 
These ancient people are not confused. They're not easily duped. They know what are mere ordinary physical causes in a fallen world. And they also know the demonic activity. And on this staff meeting, the 72 are very excited because the demons are subject to them, ordinary people, in the name of Jesus. And I want you to see what Jesus said to them. In fact, I'd love for you to read with me what's underlined on the screen. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Whoa! That tells you a great deal about Jesus. Many, many, many years, an unknowable number of years before Jesus was born, He existed as God with the Father. He witnessed the battle and He saw the outcome. He says simply, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then he says something to them that would, should thrill their hearts and can still thrill yours today. Look, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Heady stuff for an ordinary man at any time, but especially 2,000 years ago. He says you're in a special category for a special time. I'm giving you authority and I am making you invincible for a time so that you can spread the message about me. But look what he says next. Read the rest of it with me from the word nevertheless. It says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's a big attitude adjustment. Don't rejoice over the power that you have been given. I know you're wide-eyed and excited. I know you didn't sleep after that first demonic encounter where you spoke my name and the demon obeyed you, but don't worry about that. Don't even rejoice about that. Here's the cause for true joy. Your name is written in heaven. And that's what God does for every person who believes and trusts and loves His Son, Jesus Christ. He writes your name in heaven. You are known and beloved to Him, and that is a cause for true rejoicing, no matter what kind of storms rage in you or around you. But these demons are under judgment. They are under God's control. A final thought about them. Their chief weapon appears to be deception rather than raw displays of power. We're going to return to the Gospel of Luke in just a moment, and you're going to see a man who is thoroughly degraded. He is barely human. He has terrorized himself, and he has terrorized his community for as long as this has been happening to him. But these kinds of displays of raw power are rare. Why? I'll show you in Scripture why I believe this is true, but think with me for a moment. Why would it be more tactical, why would it be wiser to use deception rather than a raw, open display of power? May I submit to you that the most dangerous enemy you have is the one that you do not believe exists? If someone openly threatens you, you didn't know you had that enemy, but somebody somewhere threatens your life, you're immediately on your guard. You're taking protective measures, but if someone hates you and hates you to death and never says a word about it and never makes himself known to you in any way, but quietly plots to kill you, now you're in real danger. 
because you can't see it coming and you're not going to protect yourself. And there are missionary accounts from all across the world. I personally believe I have only had two encounters that are visibly in a separate category that I would call demonic, one here in the United States, one in Mexico. But the vast majority of spiritual encounters are not these raw displays of power, even in the New Testament. As much as Jesus dealt with demons, what he ordinarily deals with are contrary people, deceived people, rebellious people, people who will not listen, people who have been hardened. Why? Because the effect is the same, and they are lulled into complacency because they think they're just living life in as it ordinarily as it actually is. And what Jesus is doing here as the Son of God who made all things and proved who He was by dying on the cross and coming back from the dead as promised and as prophesied, He's pulling the curtain back on reality and He is showing you what kind of world you actually live in. And I would tell you that even as America grows less religious, the spiritual impulse of the United States has not weakened one bit. Late last year, an astrology app launched, and there was so much and in such immediate overwhelming demand that the server crashed several times in the first week of its existence. People are subscribing to mystical mail-order boxes, things that are sent to them once a month in a box, some kind of material they can manipulate, like a crystal or like incense that has been tuned, allegedly, to their spirituality so that they can commune with another world. The hottest thing in Silicon Valley is not only transcendental meditation, but increasingly the microdosing of psychedelics. And people are experimenting with all kinds of things, from opiates to psychedelics, to have access to another world. Why? Because the spiritual impulse will never go away. Scripture says God has placed eternity in our hearts. And the greatest deception that could ever be foisted upon mankind is to not worry about Jesus, to consider Him old hat and traditional, and certainly not true. And to not worry about what he tells us about demons and heaven and hell and eternal life, but to go on living your life as best you can, gaining knowledge from wherever you can, and accessing the spiritual world in whatever way seems good to you, so long as you don't meet the Creator, the Redeemer, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who love you and made you. Jesus is well aware of that deception, which is why he said this in John chapter 8. He's speaking to people who hate him who have blasphemed him, and he identifies what's going on in their heart. These men are not obviously demonically possessed. They're not degraded like the men I'm going to read to you about in just a few minutes in the Gospel of Luke. They just hate Jesus. And Jesus pulls the curtain back and explains what's going on. He says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires Here's the chief demon's character. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies, but because I tell you the truth, what's happening? You do not believe me. This is why the devil prefers deception rather than raw spiritual power. Paul himself will explain it to an ancient Christian church that was birthed in a pagan city. 
2 Corinthians says this regarding these false teachers. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen. Watch the deception here. Disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So what is the best satanic tactic ever to tell you everything's fine? To tell you that this thing apart from God that cannot possibly lead you to Jesus is good and all the cool people are doing it. And outdated day ideas have been left far behind and now we understand this. And so long as it is contrary to Christ, the devil, the enemy, does not really care how you get lost so long as you do not find the way, the truth, and the life who is Jesus Christ. What am I trying to tell you through all this? Simply this, too many Christians are living in wartime with a peacetime mindset. It is not unimportant that Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6 that our struggle is not with flesh and blood. It is not a matter of knowledge. It is not a matter of education. Both of those things are helpful, but they are insufficient to heal the human heart. Only Jesus can do that. Only the truth of God, who is Jesus Christ himself, can open your mind to reality. And too many of us, myself included, are living in this spiritual battleground called earth with a peacetime mindset. If a people who are actually at war behave as if it were peacetime, they will certainly be defeated. I've been fascinated for years since I was a kid by World War II history, and not only by the brave people who did the fighting, but by how the vast majority who did not fight stayed home and made extraordinary sacrifices because there was a war on. And people would say to themselves, my grandparents would tell me, they would use that phrase explaining some of the sacrifices. You know, there's a war on. That's why we're not using the car. That's why Rosie the Riveter went to work. That's why athletes walked away from lucrative careers and enlisted. That's why their wives, who had never worked before, stepped into factories. Why? There's a war on. If you know there's war, it changes your vision. And Jesus knows there's war. Go back to Luke now and let's see it unfold. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, as soon as he hits the shore, there met him a man from the city who had demons. Look at the degradation. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. That's horrifying, and if you brought it to the screen, you'd have to make it, you'd have to be really careful to make it PG-13. It's a horrifying scene. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him. Look at the knowledge from the other side of combat. These demons know exactly who Jesus is. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. And Luke backs up and tells you why he says that. 
For he, Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. What a tragedy for his family. What a humiliation for him. There's a war on, Jesus knows it, and that's why these select stories are in Scripture. God is pulling the curtain back and letting you see the reality of spiritual warfare. When I say that too many of us live with a peacetime mindset, what does that look like? That looks like primarily prayerlessness. Prayer is a humbling thing. That's why it's so difficult for so many because it requires a humble, focused concentration on God that begins with this conviction, I can't do this myself. I must have the help and the intervention and the strength of the God I cannot see, and if He does not come, I am lost. That's humbling, and that's why we run to do everything before we pray. Have you noticed? It looks like leaving this book closed. It's a big, intimidating book, and I understand that. That's why we labor at church to help you understand it in the clearest terms that we can as to the best of our God-given understanding. Here's what God wants you to know. But why would it remain closed? It's not really so much an intellectual problem, it's a spiritual problem. And if you can keep the Bible closed, if you can keep the truth out of people's hearts and minds, they will be deceived and they will be defeated. That's why your morning should start first. First person you meet with, the best attention you can give to any person, whether it's early or the first time you can actually pay attention in the morning, should be with your Heavenly Father with His Word open and your prayers up so that you can commune with the One who understands all of the universe because He made it and controls it. And the battle is raging in verse 29. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And here the demon speaks in the language of the day. A legion was a, the largest military unit in the Roman army. A legion at full strength was 6,000 men. They begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. They don't want to be part of that final judgment, at least not yet. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to litter, let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and the country. Notice the verb. They didn't just walk away. What did they do? They ran. They fled because these kinds of raw displays of spiritual power from both sides at war would be terrifying to an onlooker. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were, what's it say? They were afraid. Can you understand why? Even good things can be awe-inspiring. Even good things can take your breath away, and that's what's happening here. 
this part of their little region was notorious. Nobody went by there once this trouble started happening. If you had to go by, you hurried. You refused to go at night. It was just too terrifying to hear these tormented howls from the graveyard. You remembered how your town had sent the strongest men with chains and bonds to subdue this man, to control him, and no one could. And now the herdsmen run away and they said, we're out of a lot of money. Because this man came in a boat and he was attacked by the demoniac and he simply spoke to him. And the demons started begging this man for mercy, telling them not to be confined to the abyss. And he threw them into our pigs and our pigs hurled themselves off a cliffside and drowned. Of course they're terrified. What's happening here? The power of the demonic is being met with truth incarnate, with truth on earth who is Jesus Christ. Look with me in John chapter 17 before I show you the end of this story. Hold, please, Luke chapter 8. And look with me, please, in John 17. We're jumping ahead in the life of Jesus. This is literally the last thing they will hear him say before he's arrested. And he's not speaking to them in John 17. He's praying. And Jesus had taught his disciples to pray, but now he's not teaching them to pray. He's praying himself and letting them listen to him as he speaks to his Father. And look what he says in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Do you see the conflict? There's a world around us, but there are spiritual forces as well, and that battle is being joined. Verse 15, Jesus praying to the Father for his disciples, I do not ask you that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Father, they're at war. I'm not asking you to pull them out of war. I'm asking you to protect them in it. And here Jesus says, here's how you are protected. Here's how you are sanctified, which is a fancy biblical term that simply means set apart. Sanctify them in the truth, and then he gives us the key. What is it? Your word is truth. The old, for some familiar truths about God, are actually practically, universally, absolutely true. And as you commune with him, you move from the peacetime mindset to war. And now Jesus is going to win. Look back in Luke chapter 8. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. I'm in verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away. Wait, what? This man finds himself in perhaps the most difficult spot that any of Jesus' disciples ever did. We're not told why, but there was a day in his life where he became demon-possessed and not only demon-possessed, but invested. A playground for all of these demons so that the one speaking to Jesus says, you can call me legion. 
there are many of us here. How terrifying. And Jesus, with the absolute authority of God, the one who said before dying to these same disciples, I am the way, you remember the rest of it? The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm not one of many. I am not a mystic. I am actually the truth. I'm the one who made reality, and now I'm revealing it to you. And I can take you to the God who made you and loves you. But there's a war on. And this man has been the center of the battleground. The demons who have had their way to the hymn, had their way with him so strongly and so completely that they have made him somewhat less than human. He's torn all his clothes off. He bears the scars of the many wounds and the battles of the futile attempts to subdue him. He lives like something less than an animal in the tombs, and Jesus walks on the shore and in a few words settles the whole situation. And these Gentiles see their pigs thrown off a cliff because they are under this kind of influence, and Jesus is in charge of everything. And His power is so awe-inspiring, so breathtaking, that the Gentiles who live in that region, they simply cannot handle it. And they say to Jesus, the worst thing anyone can say to Jesus, please leave. You frighten us. You're shattering our world. We would rather live in the reality we know than the reality that you actually are. Please leave. But one man doesn't want to leave. Who is it? The demon-possessed man. Luke is very specific. The magic is in the details. It says... The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. Why? Because for the first time in his life, he's healed. Those, look up in verse 36, those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them, but Jesus sent him away. Why? Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. I want you to really focus on the last verse because it's the point of the story. This man wanted to stay with Jesus. Can you understand why? What's waiting for him back at home? More fear. They've known this man at his worst. They've seen him naked and out of his mind, demon-possessed, demonically strong. They've seen him in a way that no one should ever be seen. Of course he wants to go with Jesus. If this has gone on for a long time, his wife may have turned the chapter. His children, if they witnessed this, would be terrified of him. And now daddy's coming home, are you sure? Is he going to do it again? 
They've grown accustomed to living with this silent sorrow and this grief that this has happened, but people are amazing at compartmentalizing and pushing the pain down and away and moving on. Now Jesus is telling him the hardest thing in the world, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. I have these men with me. I don't want you to follow me physically. I want you to do something much harder. I want you to go home and look at Luke's presentation of Jesus. He wrote, Jesus said, return, first of all. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And here's the point of the story. He went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much, what? Jesus had done for him. You see the wordplay? It's very deliberate because Luke is showing you Jesus in all kinds of trouble, in complete and total control, the control of God Himself, because whatever Jesus does, God is doing. And the only man on that shore who was truly dangerous, as long as Jesus was there, was Jesus Himself. And His wonderful parable about Jesus, known as the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis does a good job of explaining the mighty lion, Aslan, who represents Jesus. He creates a funny little dialogue between the animals. And this is said about Jesus. He's dangerous, but he's good. You want him to be dangerous. You need him to be dangerous. Dangerous to what? Dangerous to sin. So that he can crush it and take it away. Dangerous to what? To death. So that he can triumph over it and in the place of death and sin give you forgiveness and eternal life. This is what God has done for that man because this is what Jesus has done for that man. And now the mandate is simple. Don't come with me. That would be easier. Go home and tell them what God did for you. And the man went straight home and said, I met a man on the Galilee who fearlessly walked right under the tombs and I could not frighten him. He's the only man I've never frightened. And he spoke to me with the authority of God and my heart, my soul, my mind, it was all returned to me. And now all my sins are forgiven and I'm back because I'm an entirely different person since I met Jesus. That's what it means to tell people what Jesus has done for you. What's it have to do with you? Why of the many things that Jesus did is this in the story? Because the hardest thing for you and for me is to go home and tell people what Jesus has done for us. I'll speak to you as a former missionary. In many ways, it's a lot easier to go all the way across the world and talk to strangers about Jesus than to go home and tell the people who know you best and who have seen you at your worst. That's hard. Now, my wife and kids, they walk with the Lord, but not everyone in my family does. Not in my extended family. Not in my circle of friends. Not in my neighborhood. And those are much harder conversations. It's much easier for me to preach to strangers than it is to have that conversation with them because when I begin telling them what Jesus has done for me, some of them will say, ah, boy, here goes the pastor again. And some of them will say, well, you know, we've seen you at your worst, and we know some of your brethren are the worst hypocrites the nation's ever seen. Are you so sure about this? It's hard to go home and tell people what Jesus has done for you. Why did Jesus call so few to go with him to hard places? 
There were 12 and there were 72. How many believed in Jesus? Multiplied thousands. Jesus told a very small number, you come with me, we're going to the hard places, we're going to the frontiers, and some of you are going to be killed for your witness. What did He tell the vast majority of His disciples, and what does He say to the vast majority of His disciples now? You go home. Tell the people who know you best. Tell the people who have seen you at your worst because the point of this story is this, sometimes following Him simply means telling them. It's a good crowd here at the 9 a.m. service. It'll probably be even bigger at 10.30. Imagine what it would be if the 700 or more likely, because not everybody comes every weekend, if the 900 to 1,000 people who call Cross Point home heard Jesus say, you follow me, you love me, I've given you your life, now you go tell them. What would that look like? That would look like war because you'll be afraid. You'll want to say like this demon-possessed man, can I just go with you and start over? Can you take me to a town where nobody knows me? Can we just leave this so deep in the past that I never have to tell my story? Jesus says, no, you go home and tell them the things that God has done for you. And he went home and talked all about who? Jesus. And so should you and so should I. There's probably a circle of five or six for the social folk among you, the well-networked people among you, maybe a dozen or 20 people that you would consider your home base. They don't all live under your roof, but this is your home. These are the people who know you best. Have you told them the great things that Jesus has done for you? If you're a disciple, if you're a disciple, have you gone home and have you told them? Let's pray about that right now, shall we? Could I ask you to bow your head? Two kinds of people in the room, those who have already settled this with Jesus and those who have not. Let me speak first of all to those of you who have. You have given your life to Jesus, and more importantly, He has given you life, and you know it. There's no doubt in your heart and mind. He's in charge. You've put Him in charge. He's given you eternal life. You know yourself to be a different person. Could I give you a minute of silence to pray for those you would call home? Have you told them? Have you joined the battle in the hardest place at all, the home front? Take those names and faces that come to mind that you would consider your home. Take those to Jesus right now and ask Him to give you the courage to make following Him mean telling them. And for the second group of people, I'm telling you about the only life there is. There are many paths. There are many ways. But Jesus himself said on the authority of his death and resurrection, I'm the only one that can take you to God. He is the only one in charge of everything because he made it. Would you turn to him and trust him as Savior this morning? If you've been putting it off, 
If you've been feeling, and maybe you're feeling it now, that familiar tug to humble yourself before God and tell Him you're sorry for your sin and you want Jesus as Savior and boss instead, if you've been putting it off, I'll tell you what that is. That's war. And you've been losing if you've been putting Jesus off. You humble yourself and trust Him, He wins, and you win with Him. He'll make you a new creation. Very unlikely that anything as dramatic as happened to this man will happen in your life, but He'll give you the exact same salvation, the same depth of forgiveness. He'll do the same thing with the shame and guilt in your life as He did with the shame and guilt in the life of this man. He'll make it all go away because He nailed it to the cross. He died for you and rose again so that you could be saved. So if you've been putting him off, putting him off, I'm begging you in the name of Jesus to turn and believe so that you may be saved. If you do, let us know before you leave through one of those cards in the baskets or at the hello table. Father, together we represent thousands of people in our home base that need to know you. I pray for those in my family They've diverted the conversation away from you many times. They're not ready. I pray that you would help me reach them. I pray for all the people, Lord, for whom it is hardest for us to go home and tell them. Give us boldness this week, not just to seek out the stranger, that may be easier, but to go home and tell them the great things that you, Jesus, God Almighty, have done for us. And receive this offering from the heart of a grateful church that has heard your command to be generous and to love eternity more than earthly possessions. And gather up, Lord, the decisions, the will, the change of mind, the repentance of your people, that we may be more like you. In Christ's name I pray.